Well, hey, good morning, everybody. So glad you could join us either in the room, in person, or online as we continue a series we've called Virtual Israel. And I know a few of you are waiting for my comment on the football games yesterday. We ain't going there, okay? <laughs> Three words, even so come. That's a church joke, but you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, uh, Virtual Israel uh, is a series um, uh, that contains content I've been preparing for over a year now in anticipation to some trips that we plan to take to Israel in 2020 with a whole bunch of you. Uh, trips that obviously didn't happen due to the pandemic. But, and here's the good news, as many of you know, when that happened, I decided to do the next best thing and take all of you on a free eight-week trip to Israel virtually. No passport or international travel required. They wouldn't let us anyway. But uh, if you're joining us for the first time, here's how it works. Each week, I'm introducing you to a location that was included on the itinerary for our trips. And then I'm teaching some of the content that I plan to present at that site. Uh, anyway, today, as we continue to explore the story of ancient Israel, uh, we're going to unpack one of the best known narratives in the entire Old Testament of your Bible. It's a story so epic. It's a story so iconic that it's even been adopted by popular culture as a way to talk about underdogs. I speak, of course, of the story of David and Goliath. And I didn't get the reverb like Randy did. I'm a little upset about that. That's uh, okay. We're moving on. Now, now I realize that almost all of you kind of think, oh, David and Goliath. Yeah, I totally get that story. I've heard it ever since I was a kid. Uh, but here's the thing. What most people don't recognize about David and Goliath is what I believe to be the most important thing about the narrative of David and Goliath. Uh, because what I've come to learn is that beneath the surface of the narrative lies an answer to a question that really has never been more relevant than it is right now. In the midst of a world that feels, and maybe you've noticed this, like we've gone off the rails a bit. Uh, and the question, well, the question goes like this. Where is the best place to put your trust? Where's the best place to put your trust? In other words, wh where's the best place to look to find courage and support and hope? Especially when significant challenges enter your life or the lives of the people that you love. Where should you look when you find yourself feeling exposed and vulnerable and scared and, and when you're not sure what to do next? Well, as I was preparing for our time together this morning, I actually came upon an article on the internet. I don't know if you've tried this internet thing. I think it's catching on. There's a lot of good stuff out there. But I read this article suggesting that we humans have a tendency to place our trust in one of three things. Here's what the author said. If you're like most people, your tendency is to naturally put your trust in either money or power or people or some combination of the three. We naturally lean into one of these things to help us maintain our inner peace. And we look to one of these things during challenging times to offer us hope. Moreover, and, and here's where this gets really interesting, at least to me, we do this even though deep down, when we stop to think about it, we know that these things cannot ultimately accomplish what we want them to. They will all eventually fail us. Uh, take, for example, money. Uh, money certainly can offer us options in life. It can provide us with temporary comfort and convenience. It can buy us machines that make our lives easier and more entertaining. I'm looking at you, iPhone 12 Pro Max. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. But uh, money, so money can offer us uh, the opportunity to travel and to learn and to grow. 
to have great experiences. But, but again, if we're honest, money also has limits as to what it can accomplish. Money can't heal broken relationships. Uh, the Beatles taught us that money can't buy you love. Remember that one? Yeah, right? It, it ultimately can't protect our physical health, and, and it can be an unstable foundation on which to place our trust because the force is largely beyond our control. I mean, stock markets can swing. Real estate values can crash. And, and when those things happen, we can be left feeling vulnerable and, and even a little bit hopeless. Consequently, in the end, money isn't a great place to put your trust. It can also be tempting to put your trust in power, to lean emotionally on the fact that we or those with whom we share an allegiance have authority or influence. They can change things. They can get things done, or we can. But, but here's the thing, and you've probably noticed, uh, that, that power can be given and power can be taken away from you and from others. And moreover, it, when it's given, it has its limits. Consequently, in the end, power isn't a great place to put your trust either. Finally, it's natural to put your trust in other people. People that you know, people that you love, uh, people that you believe are in your corner and on your side. But, but as you've probably experienced firsthand, that isn't always a great idea either. And we've all had moments in our lives of incredible disappointment when people we trust, when people we love, parents or coaches or friends or even a spouse, lets us down. So, so all things considered, people aren't a great place to put your trust either. Fortunately, though, there is another admittedly counterintuitive and I would argue undeniably better option. And that option is embodied brilliantly in the story of David and Goliath. And with the rest of our time today, I want to show you what I mean. The conflict between David and Goliath occurred 50 years or so after the story of Samson that we explored last week. And if you weren't with us or you didn't catch it online, you can go back to the website uh, anytime and catch up on demand. Uh, but about 50 years after the story of Samson, around the year 1050 BC, uh, we find Israel once again in conflict with a group of people called the Philistines who lived along the coast of the Mediterranean and who desired to expand their influence inland. Now, the Philistines were a formidable enemies for Israel and really everyone else because they had mastered iron technology, a fact that made them incredibly wealthy and gave them a significant advantage in battle. Uh, this was the dawn of the Iron Age, if you're a history nerd like me. Now, with that background, let's jump into the story of David and Goliath. Here's how the author in the, of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel sets it up for us. He writes this, he says, Now the Philistines gathered in their forces for war. Saul, who was Israel's king at the time, uh, and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. He goes on, The Philistines, he says, occupied one hill and the Israelites the other with the valley in between them. Now, when I get to take you to Israel someday, I want to show you this valley. And there's a particular spot in the valley where scholars believe that this conflict would have happened. It's a, a city called Azekah. It's uh, Tel Azekah. And this picture was taken uh, from the spot where we typically uh, do uh, the talk about David and Goliath. But you see this, this lush, fertile valley. We're in the foothills or Shephelah region of Israel. Shephelah just means foothills. I was just trying to be fancy and make you think I was smart. Got to do that every once in a while, right? So anyway, uh, but when you you look at Israel, there's the coastline, and then there's the foothills, or Shephelah, and then there's the mountains. And so if you want to get from the coastline up into the mountains, the easiest way to do that is through these long, fertile 
valleys. So the valley of Elah runs east to west and provides a way to move from Israel's coast up into the mountains. And the Elah Valley is significant because it will drop you right near Jerusalem. Consequently, it provided an incredibly important route in the ancient world for transporting people, goods, and ideas. And not surprisingly, it was also the site of many ancient military conflicts, including the one that we get to unpack today. So as the narrative continues, the author records this is what happened. He tells us a champion named Goliath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. And just do the Christian move thing here. We'll just go, mm, go ahead, one, two, three. Yeah, mm, yeah, six, that's it. That, he, that sounds terrifying. Six cubits, my goodness. I wonder how tall his dad was. Five and a half cubits. Anyway, he says, he wore a coat of scale armor, which is an interesting detail. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Once again, let me hear you. Mm, yeah, it was basically a really heavy iron tip on his spear. But, but notice that when the author records both Goliath's height and the weight of the iron tip of his spear, he uses the number six. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but it was a profound insight for the first people to hear this story and to tell it to their children. Because in ancient Jewish culture, the number six was used to symbolize things. It was used to symbolize humanity or mankind because mankind was created on the sixth day by God in Genesis, according to that account. But the number six was also used to symbolize sin and more broadly, anything that stood in opposition to God. And so the author wants his readers to recognize Goliath, not only as a big scary dude who wants to harm them, which is fair, but also something like the embodiment of evil itself. And, and if you're a Bible nerd like me, you probably are thinking, why have I heard something like this before? Uh, well, in the Old Testament, or the New Testament, or the end of the New Testament, there's a letter called Revelation. And in that letter, uh, Jesus' disciple John records that the number 666 was something he called the, no the number of the beast. And he used it to designate an individual who the Bible's authors called the Antichrist someone who was set against God. And so the author wants us to see Goliath as more than just a big, scary dude. He literally is something like the embodiment of evil. Anyway, as the account continues, we learn a little bit more of what happened that day. Author writes, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Choose a man, so just one, and have him come down to me. He goes on, if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects, your slaves. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects or slaves and serve us. And, and you know, well, it kind of sounds ridiculous, but if you think about it, Goliath presents the armies of Israel with a pretty incredible opportunity. Uh, because of iron technology, the Philistines had a powerful advantage in a full-on combat. And so many Israelite soldiers would have been lost had one erupted, but in Goliath's proposal, only one man would need to die in order to decide the battle's outcome. And all things considered, I don't think that's such a bad deal, except that someone still has to fight the big, scary Philistine guy with the heavy tip on his sword. Well, as the narrative continues, the author notes that on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, who's again the king, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And then the author goes on to tell us that Goliath came out and issued the same challenge for 40 days in a row. And so in this moment, 
near the end of the 40 days, the armies of Israel are desperately in need of a champion. And you say, well, would, was there, would there have been anybody that they would have considered to maybe face Goliath? The answer would be yes. And the answer to that question would be their king, Saul. Uh, they had placed their trust in him as their leader, but, but actually for a few other reasons that the Bible tells us. Uh, the first was that the Bible records that King Saul was among the tallest men in all of Israel. So logically, when a giant issues a challenge to the armies for a one-on-one -on -one combat battle, uh, they would have looked to their tallest guy to rescue them. Second, as best we can tell, Saul owned one of only two suits of armor in all of Israel in that time. And so he was the only one who kind of had the gear needed to face Goliath. Like if anybody had a chance, it was Saul. And so Saul seemed the logical candidate to volunteer for the battle. And I can just imagine as the days went by, the soldiers just kept looking towards where Saul was staying and waiting for him to come out and do what he was supposed to do. He was the place they placed their trust. He was the place they had placed their hope. However, as the text records, instead of engaging the giant Saul, well, he stayed in his tent. And with each passing day, his credibility and his people's hope for a favorable end to the conflict slipped away. The king failed his people. And now at this point, it's worth noting that God had never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. He wanted Israel to look to him as their king. He wanted to be the place where they put their trust. But a few years before the incident with Goliath, the people of Israel had all but demanded a king. They went to their leader, who was a judge at the time, a conversation for another day, but a guy named Samuel. And they said to Samuel, and the Bible records this for us, to basically appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. In other words, all the cool kids have a king. We want a king, right? But in the moment they made that request, they forgot that God had established Israel for a specific purpose, and that purpose went way beyond them. Israel was to be like no other nation. As we keep coming back to during the series, they were to be set apart. They, they were to, to be a nation that let God lead them, and in so doing, be a light to the world. God wanted other nations to see the way Israel was blessed and give him the credit. That was his plan to reveal himself to the world. But, but now they wanted a king to lead them. And so in response to the people's request, Samuel prays and God responds. God tells Samuel the following. He says, well, they, the people of Israel, have rejected me as their king. They don't want me. They, they, they want a human. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. And he goes on, he says, and let them know what the king that they want, that I don't think is a good plan at all, but the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. In other words, Samuel, uh, let the people know they can have a king, but it's not going to be like they think it's going to be. Their king will, will draft their sons for battle and tax them heavily and claim the best land and, and tons of the resources of the nation for himself. And so Samuel relays God's warning to the leaders of the people. And yet they insist that they still want a king. And, and, and that demand for a king set the stage for the story of David, who years after the incident with Goliath would become Israel's second king. Saul was the first, David was the second. But it's also worth noting that David was Israel's second king, but David was Israel's greatest king. 
And to be clear, David wasn't Israel's greatest king because he was perfect. If you know the story, it, not at all. The Bible's authors record that what made David great was his love for the law of God. And, and this set him apart because kings didn't typically love laws. They typically adjusted laws whenever it served their purposes. But David loved God's law, even, and this is key, when it condemned his behavior. David saw God's law as a gift, and that conviction gave him incredible insight as he served as Israel's king. Moreover, David never became confused as to the identity of Israel's true king. So in spite of all of David's popularity and success, he never lost that clarity. And if we're honest, for most of us, that's not the case. Because whenever we attain a little bit of success in sales or with family or with academics, we can quickly find ourselves sitting on the throne of our lives. And when that happens, our trust naturally migrates to our own strength and ability because we always place our trust in whatever we think we can depend on the most. But David never made that mistake. And we actually see this disposition in him on display when he was a young shepherd boy. So let's jump back into the story. As the account continues, we learn that one day David, who as best we can tell was like 10 to 12 years old, uh, brings a care package to his brothers who are part of King Saul's army. And when he arrives at the Valley of Elah, only about 12 mile walk from his home in Bethlehem, when he arrives at the Valley of Elah, he hears Goliath taunting and is incredibly offended. So he asks the men standing near him. He looks at him and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And, and you, you can just imagine these words not coming from a deep baritone of a soldier, but, but of a, a, a preteen boy. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And we can just imagine that the soldiers would have been stunned by David's questions, one, because of a boldness coming from a child, but, but number two, because they haven't seen Goliath as a disgrace. They've seen him as a one-man killing machine. They're terrified of him. But in this moment, David demonstrates clarity. He sees that Goliath and the Philistines were attempting to take the land that God had given to his people. And so David basically says, why hasn't anyone done anything about this? Well, word gets back to King Saul in his tent that, that David is asking these questions and David is so offended. And so he arranges to meet with David. And David walks through the flaps of the tent and he immediately recognizes this David, this, this, this individual who's making these bold statements of faith about, about God and Goliath. I mean, he's just, he's no soldier. He's a preteen boy who spends his days hanging out with sheep. He's like, oh, this is our great hope. Fantastic, right? He's no armor. He doesn't know how to use weapons. He's certainly no match for Goliath. The contrast between the two almost couldn't be any greater. And, and, so, and so Saul tries to dismiss David. He's like, you know, go back home. Go back to your sheep. Well, we're going to handle this. And as I imagine it, David looks at him. He's like, oh, this is how you're handling it, hiding in your tent. Nice, right? But he doesn't say that because he's the king. But David resists eviction from the king's presence. And he boldly asks Saul for permission to stand up to Goliath on behalf of the nation. And Saul just can't even believe that, that he even thinks that's possible. But, but, but David says, you know, despite my lack of military experience, I do have some relevant experience. And here's what he tells King Saul. He says, your servant, speaking of himself, has killed both the lion and the bear. 
this uncircumcised Philistine. And don't you love the detail? It's just great. Like, how would you? No, never mind. That's a conversation for another. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because I am so tough. No. Because I am so strong, because I am so bold, because I am so brave. No. Because he has defied the armies of the living God. Israel's armies? No, 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 no. He's defied God. He goes on. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. By the way, yeah, I didn't do that myself. Will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Goliath will fall. And not because of me, but because of him. And, and so I love David, David's confidence in this moment. He's standing before the most powerful man in the country. But, but I love even more than his confidence where he found his confidence. Because that day, standing on a hill overlooking the valley of Elah, David saw things in a way no one else did and no one else could because he had placed his trust somewhere no one else had. And so even when faced with an impossible situation, David found courage. He became the living embodiment of a truth many of us have experienced, however imperfectly. And that truth goes like this. People who trust in God don't need to fear even when there is something to fear. This is something we've come around a few times during the pandemic because it's so, so critical that we keep this right at the front of our hearts and our minds. People who trust in God don't need to fear even when there is something to fear. David was convinced, convinced of this on both a practical and emotional level. It wasn't just an idea that he intellectually agreed with. This was something he lived into and so he asked Saul to let him do what no other man was willing to do, even though, practically speaking, from the eyes of everyone there, this was a horrible, horrible idea. It's interesting to me to note that later in his life, David wrote some poetry that ended up in the Old Testament of your Bible. Much of it is, is recorded in a book called Psalms, which you will find conveniently labeled Psalms. So I recently had to tell my boys, it's the, the P is silent, it's like pneumonia, you know? Yeah, like that. Anyway, so the Psalms, um, and they're beautiful, and they still speak to us, but they give us this window into how David saw the world. And so at one point, in one of these Psalms, or songs, David writes the following. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you, I trust. Then he goes on, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. And teach me, for, for you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long, David. Where's your hope? Money? Power? People? Position? No, my, my hope... My hope's in God, and, and in Him, in Him, I trust. And so just imagine with me if we could have coffee with David at Starbucks, which would be awesome, but anyway, right? Still working on my time machine. But if we were to ask David, you know, where you, he chose to place his trust and where we should choose to place our trust, he, he would say, 
God. And, and then he would say, you know, only God is worthy of your trust when you stop to think about it because only God is ultimately in control of the outcome of whatever it is you're facing. Moreover, only trust in him can provide you peace in spite of seemingly impossible circumstances. A pastor named Paul in the New Testament talks about this peace that passes understanding. What is it? That peace that passes understanding comes when we surrender fear to trust. We say, okay, God, I, I, I put my trust in you. My hope is in you. And whatever comes and whatever happens, I'm going to believe that you're at work in this. Even if it doesn't go my way, you're still at work in this. And may your peace invade my life. Okay, back to the story. So David makes his way down to the Valley of Elah in what had to be a painfully awkward moment. Can you just imagine like the sun is rising over the hill. Goliath comes out once again and says, you know, is anybody going to come and fight me today? How long do we have to stand here? And then all of a sudden he sees this young boy approaching him and he begins to laugh. And the Philistine armies begin to laugh. Like, you've got to be kidding me. He's not even wearing any armor. He's just got a sling with a rock in it. Ooh, Right? I mean, what, 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 what could he possibly do? And then on the other hill, you've got the armies of Israel looking down going, oh, no, right? Oh, no, 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 no. Because did Saul tell David he could represent us? Because if he did and David falls to Goliath, then we're the slaves of the Philistines. And I just checked my phone and the app with the odds on it are not in our favor at all. Like really, really bad, right? Worse than even the Michigan-Ohio State game this year. I'm just saying. So I brought it up again. Why did I do that? I don't even know. But yeah, right? But the unthinkable was unfolding right before their eyes. So as the story continues, Goliath repeats his threats and David responds. And again, you've got to picture it in, through the voice of an 11-year-old kid. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I mean, you're wearing the armor with the scales on it that kind of reminds me of that, that the story I was told about the first people in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and led the people astray, the deceiver. So you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of of the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Yeah, I'm not your problem, big guy. He goes on, this day, he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down. And then just so we're really clear that you're out of commission, I'm going to cut off your head. You're like, 11-year-old, like, wow, okay. This very day. I will give the carcass of the Philistine, or carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel because look at me. There's no way I'm doing that without his help, right? Just so we're all clear on that. And then, as the narrative continues, David's words prove prophetic. He kills Goliath, and in an instant becomes the most popular man in all of Israel. David had done what King Saul refused to do because he saw what King Saul refused to see. Which brings me to the big idea for today. And it's something that's as true for you and me as it was for David. 
It's a truth that transcends generations. It goes like this. Trusting God's power, trusting God can empower us to live courageously in this life. Whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in. And in fact, friends have told me that the trusting God thing, the more that you can embody that, like the more light shines into your darkness. And it's like the scarier the situation we find ourselves in, the more valuable trusting God actually can be. And I've worked, with a, I've worked as a pastor now for over 20 years. And in that time, I've come to recognize that those who choose to trust in God, and this is key, because if you're here and you're seeking and you're searching and you're kicking the tires and you're sort of like, you've heard of David and Goliath, but this is a whole new angle on it. Here's the thing. I've recognized that people who choose to trust in God aren't just exercising wishful thinking. They, they, aren't, just, they aren't just like hoping into oblivion. Rather, they've reached a place where they've realized and recognized at an emotional level that they are incapable of ultimately controlling outcomes in their life. And they've rightly acknowledged that there are simply too many factors that are outside of their influence. And so they decide that once they've done everything they know to do, right? It's not like they stop saving or planning or going to the doctors. It's like once they've done everything they know to do, they simply trust God with the rest and trust that he has given them, and that trust gives them courage to face the darkest seasons of this life. And so before we, we close, I, I just want to ask you a question. And it's a question I've been asking myself all week. It's been driving me nuts, so I'm going to make drive you all nuts too, okay? What would change for you if you could do what David did? How would your life be different if you really placed your trust in God? Right here, Right now, in the midst of economic and political uncertainty, along with a pandemic that seems to be getting more complicated by the day. If you just simply reached the moment where you surrendered and you said to God, I trust you. I trust you with the outcomes of whatever I'm facing. I mean, just imagine like if in the middle of your greatest successes and greatest failures, in those moments when it seems like your Goliath is going to take you down, or in those moments where it feels like your Goliath is going to take you out, or those moments where your Goliath does take you down, you simply open your hands and you say like David, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. I'm not going to trust in my resources. I mean, I, I, I'm going to be diligent with them. I want to steward them all, but I'm not, I'm, that's not where I'm going to place my trust ultimately because I know, I know there's a limit to what that can accomplish. And I'm not going to trust my power or the power of people that, that I'm in allegiance with, people that think like me and believe like me because, because power can be given and power can be taken away. And, and so that has its limits. And so, okay, I'm not going to trust in money and I'm not going to trust in power. And I, and I guess I can't really trust in people either. Because people can let me down too. In fact, the only one I can trust and the only one who ultimately has proved to be faithful and worthy of my trust is also the one who controls the outcome. So yeah, God, okay. It's a little counterintuitive and unde but undeniably better. So I will trust in you. And I'm telling you, if we can get there, and it's never going to be perfect, but if we can get there a little bit more, we're going to be taking a step 
towards experiencing the kind of life lived in intimate connection and relationship with a heavenly father who loves us and who is for us. We're going to take a step towards the life that God designed us to live. All right, that brings us to the end of our time together. But, but again, like every week, and we say this, my hope is that all of this sparks conversation with whoever you do life with. So I want to give you three questions to get you going. And, and again, if you have teenagers in the house, this is an incredible opportunity, especially um, you know, with, with the time that we're spending in the next few weeks with each other and in homes and, and you know, with our people and, and just, just a chance to, to leverage that for some conversation. So here we go. Question number one goes like this. Where are you most tempted to place your trust? And why do you think that's the case? That's interesting. You may never have thought about that. I mean, a lot of us would go, okay, I know where I go to naturally, and I know what I should say in church, but I know where I go to naturally. But why? Why do we go there? That's that's an interesting conversation. Number two, um, what are some reasons that might make it difficult for you to trust God? And just just be honest. Like, what are some of the reasons? And there are reasons that make it difficult to trust God. That's why we don't naturally do it. Um, That's why faith faith is required and faith is a leap. Uh, Number three, what would change for you if you truly could trust God with the outcomes of your life? And again, the honesty, the more honest we can be when we're engaging these conversations with people we love, the more fruitful the conversations end up being. And and your honesty will often unlock honesty in others. Uh, And so in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. um, And uh, online, just stay tuned. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning in a world that feels so uncertain. We have more questions than answers. And at the same time, we acknowledge that this is probably the best place to recognize our inability to control outcomes and to look to you. In the coming weeks and months as we face down our own version of Goliath, I pray that you would give us the courage to stand, to trust, to hope in the only one who will never let us down and never let us go. I pray specifically for friends this morning who came into this room burdened with economic concerns, with health concerns, political concerns. Pray that you would meet them with your peace in this place. Whisper to them that you love them more than they can possibly imagine and you have everything under control. May we be a people of peace in a time of chaos. May we be a light in a time of darkness. And may people come to know you because of the light that is reflected through our lives. We thank you for sending us the greatest gift imaginable, the greatest gift possible when you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to walk on this broken planet and to point us to truth and hope and life. It is in his name the name above all names that we pray. Everyone said, 
Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week. Stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out, stepping out. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out, stepping out.